Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, the history podcast from a Baptist perspective. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And today we're going to be talking about Baptists and the Revolutionary War. So, to tease our upcoming episode, I just got back from Chicago. Okay. Do you have deep dish pizza? I didn't, but I did have one of those hot dogs. Oh, okay. Uh, Is that the one where you're not allowed to put mustard or ketchup on it? I hope not, because I did. It's basically everything you can put on a hot dog, you do. Tomatoes, pickles, sesame seed bun. Anyway, it was pretty good. Then it had some barbecue, which is not bad. But the main thing I did was I went to Ebenezer Baptist Mission, Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church, which is the birthplace of gospel music. So if you ever seen like a gospel, like a black choir singing gospel music, that's where it started at that church. So uh, it's a pretty fascinating history. Migration from the south to the north, development of the music style, involvement with churches there. So we'll talk about that later. But it was a fun trip. It is the Windy City. That's what I've heard. And it was windy. Yeah, my and wife's, parking is very expensive downtown. My wife's been trying to get me to go on a trip because she went to college there and she loved it. So we haven't made a trip out there yet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's we went to the Willis Tower, which is Sears Tower. It's fun. You can go out onto this glass box that overhangs so that you're basically standing on a piece of glass looking down, which was so bad for me that I couldn't look down. Took the picture as fast as I could, and I was nauseous for about five to ten minutes. Really? Yeah. When afterwards, we, the Eiffel Tower has a similar <laughs> thing, and my wife refused to go out on it. It's terrible. But I took my daughter, so it was a fun trip. Uh, but on to more uh, ancient things, the Revolutionary War. Pretty popular topic nowadays. In America. In America, at least. I don't think Britain cares as much. Uh, okay, so you're a fan of the Revolutionary War, right? Yeah. Generally fair. And Have you read the book uh, 1776? By McCullough? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. He's a good writer. Mm-hmm. He knows how to write to people who don't like history. Or who like history but don't like footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, yeah. So, anyway, it's it's one of the most uh, important parts of history in American history. So, you know, what were Baptists around back then? Which, you know, they were. What was their involvement? So, the Revolutionary War is interesting. And how it started. So I was doing some research. The French and Indian War, mm-hmm. which is 1760-something. French Indians, Native Americans versus English. So the colonists were on the English side. Right. English win. But after this, they set up a boundary that... So there's a proclamation put out where set colonists could not move past a certain point. So if you looked at a map of America, it was basically a line that went straight down the East Coast, and they could not expand westward, which seems odd, but it seems like the king was afraid that they were going to get too powerful. So then he set up border control along this border, and what he said was to protect them from the Native Americans attacking them. Right. But it was actually a double border, so they couldn't actually expand out. So then he had stationed troops all along this. Well, the colonists didn't like that. Because you know, basically they were hemmed in on the East Coast. So King George, border control, he had stationed troops, cost money. Then he had the Seven Years' War in Europe. So now England is in debt up to their eyeballs. Colonists, on the other hand, are doing very well. They're making rum that they're importing. They've got uh, tobacco. So, but the tensions are starting. So, you know, they win the war, and then all of a sudden they got border control. They can't expand. They've got troops being stationed on the border. 
And then the king says, we need to, we need to pay off this debt for the Seven Years' War. Let's tax the colonies, and they can raise funds. So that was the Stamp Act, where they taxed anything printed on paper. You get a stamp. Well, the colonists didn't like that either. Am I so? I believe, if I remember correctly, the even the taxes that were put on the American colonists—no, they weren't American at the time—but the colonists in America were lower taxes still than people in England were paying under British rule. Right, England was being taxed heavily, uh, but in England they're being taxed. So there was, yeah, it's problematic that colonists—you can tell—they've already got in their head that they're different and special. And so they didn't appreciate that at all. And they didn't like the idea they're being used to raise money, even though they pledged loyalty to the king. And even though people in England were being taxed in, but you could tell they already started separating themselves from England in some way. So they really pushed back hard, especially Boston area, New England. And then the king, as monarchies do, said, uh, you're required to do what we say. So the king pushed back harder. And so you got like the Townsend Act, the Stamp Act, the Sugar Act, all taxes. They did think with the, the uh, East India Company. They re- so East India Company, which is a separate independent company, had a ton of extra sugar that they didn't know what to do with. So the king declared that they had that they could take it to, to the colonies and they had to sell it there, which flooded the market in America and lowered the cost of rum, which uh, the colonies were exporting. So stuff like that where the colonies didn't appreciate this sort of treatment. Trade's being disrupted. Money's being taken. So like good Americans, what do they do? They had violent protests. <laughs> I, I think we forget I, this. I think like, they, they had parties, right? The Boston Tea Party. It was basically like everyone got, they dressed up, tuxedos, nice clothes, had some, some refreshments, uh, gathered around the harbor. Watch the boats come and go. <laughs> yeah, they did. It was a party. So what happened was the tea had come into the harbor. They wouldn't let them disembark. So the harbor was being filled with tea ships. Uh, one had already been burned in Annapolis. They'd already burned one tea ship. And so at the Boston Tea Party, they jumped on the ship. They stole the tea. They broke it open. They dumped it into the ocean, into the harbor. I think it was about $750,000 worth of of tea and our money. But another thing, there's a ship called the Gatsby, which was in charge of catching people who weren't paying taxes. And it was heavy handed. It would, it would stop you, take all your stuff, throw you in prison, but it was legal. It was their job. So one day some Bostonians decide that they had enough of that. So they lured it to, to shallow water and it grounded then that night, they jumped on board, wounded the captain, kidnapped the crew, burned it to the ground. Which, given that they were subject of the king, that was the king's ship, what would you call that? Insurrection? Yeah, I mean, treason? Yeah. Insurrection? Violence. The Boston Massacre. British troops stationed in Boston, a mob, crowd. 50 people start throwing, throwing rocks, which, you know, it sounds funny until you get a rock the size of your fist and you hit someone in the head with it. And so they got fired upon. John Adams defended the Boston, the, the troops, acquitted them of murder. So what's happening is 
the king is taxing them, disrupting trade, oppressive economic conditions. The colonies respond with violence, which causes the king to respond with more restrictions, stationing troops there, bringing, you know, ships into the harbor, uh, trade disruptions, aggressive enforcements. So the colonists were saying it's legitimate to respond with violence to these acts to the point of the Revolutionary War, which was the ultimate act of violence to resist. Now, what were Baptists doing during this time? So it's pretty volatile. Uh, the common assumption is that Baptists are the most liberty-loving people, right? Among Baptists, at least they say this. Therefore, they were, of course they were on board with the Revolutionary War. There's a book by James Beller, American Crimson Red, which takes that line. Sort of look how great the Baptists were during the Revolutionary War. And it's not the best book to read on the subject. It's, it's, it's propaganda a bad word. It's an accurate word. It doesn't have to be derogatory, right? Let's assume it doesn't have to be derogatory right. and call this book propaganda. Okay. <laughs> in a well-meaning sense, with many true facts in it. But definitely putting across an idea that Baptists are the best. So it's the idea that Baptists, because they love liberty so much, love the idea of the Revolutionary War, right? Because it's all about liberty. Well, that's not true. And the Baptists were sort of have a separate conversation at this time. So you sort of have the colonial government leaders, John Adams, Samuel Adams, uh, Ezra Stiles. And then the Baptists sort of watching from the outside, decide whether they're going to support it or not. And in the beginning, Baptists were ambivalent to the Revolutionary War often outright opposing it. So this is where the, the popular idea that I was taught in college and seminary and in a lot of books is that Baptists wholeheartedly supported the war. But that's not true. So two reasons. Well, three really. Number one, Baptists were actually having a revival at this time. Okay, so there was one. So you're at a Brown University. Yes. It's a pretty big school. You know, it was a Baptist school. It was the first Baptist college in America. Started about this time, 1770s. So the president of it was a Baptist by the name of uh, James Manning, who worked with Isaac Backus and basically every other prominent New England Baptist. One of the most prominent Baptists of this time. So he says, so 1775, you have April 19th, the Lexington battle, the mm -hmm. famous shot heard around the world. Here's what this Baptist leader says. The fatal 19th of April, the day of the Lexington battle, like an electric stroke, put a stop to the progress of the work, as well as in other places as here. Oh, horrid war, how contrary to the spirit of Jesus. Hmm. So Baptists had grown in like 10 years from like four churches to 40 in New England. And then the war starts. And war is always bad for spiritual endeavors and church planning. So James Manning says this war is terrible. We're trying to start churches and reach people and grow the Baptist faith. And now everybody's fighting. And that's all I care about is killing. So he said it's, it's antichrist. So that's when you look at it from that point of view. Baptists, at least those Baptists, did not support the war. Then Baptists were actually being taxed for their faith by the government. And if they didn't pay their taxes, their land was seized. So in, in Asheville, Massachusetts, there was a Baptist church that didn't pay its taxes because they didn't believe it was right. So the government came in, took hundreds of acres of land. The the government that John Adams was a part of, mm -hmm. the Massachusetts government, took their land and forced them to pay. 
taxation without representation. <laughs> in Virginia at this time, 30 to 40 Baptist pastors were being imprisoned by the government. So Baptists were saying, I'm not sure that this colonial government is actually on our side. It's on the side of the established church, but not ours. In 1774, you had the First Continental Congress. So the beginning of sort of this idea of an independent America. These Baptists who are being oppressed by the Massachusetts government, Isaac Backus, James Manning, and several others, said, let's go to this new Continental Congress and ask them if they'll give us freedom, liberty. So they went and met with John Adams, Samuel Adams, Robert Treat Payne. So right, I, these are the leaders, like right. sons of liberty. Founding fathers. Founding fathers who love liberty, are willing to fight and die for liberty. And so the Baptists go to them and say, we want liberty. We want to worship in peace. We don't want to have to pay taxes and, and violate our conscience. You know, we don't We think we should control our own you know, faith and religion. And John Adams, Samuel Adams, got angry with them. Sounds he, like Samuel Adams. It does, yes. John Adams was not much more sympathetic. And they basically told them, this is pointless. What's your problem? It's just a few, you know, a few pennies. Why don't you just pay it? Which is the height of irony coming from people who are willing to burn things down because of the few pennies of tax. So then John, John Adams says to these Baptists, to Isaac Backus, James Manning, we might as well expect a change in the solar system as to expect they will give up their establishment. That's the established church. So the, the founding father said, the universe is going to change before Baptists have religious liberty. So you can see why Baptists were like, I'm not sure about this revolution. Because another thing they did was they appealed to the king as colonists, as members of, of British government or British empire. They appealed to the king for relief and they got it. So they're in this moment before the war starts where they're wondering who's on our side. Right. We've so, appealed to the government. So their ministry is growing under British rule and the people on the revolutionary side are dismissive. Yes. And telling them they'll still be, well, it was protected as much as any other religion. Yeah, so I'd so. pay taxes to the established church. Sure. But yeah, the new government, the new colonial government is saying, well, the same thing's going to be with us. Down in Virginia, they're being thrown in jail, whipped, beaten, attacked. So ambivalence about whether this is a good thing or not. Then another thing was some of them supported the British. And a lot of them didn't like the idea of war at all. So there's a strand of pacifism or nonviolence. And we talked about this before with like George Lyle, same time period. Mm -hmm. This sort of Christian idea of nonviolence. Well, Baptists held to it in some places. So there's a Baptist organiza organization called Sandy Creek Association, mm -hmm. which was an early 1700s church planting movement that planted thousands of churches that still exist to this day. Well, when the war came, when the, they started going out to recruit them, pastors in this group of, of North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, were very resistant. And in fact, some preachers threatened to excommunicate any member that fought in the war. So if you're a member of one of these Baptist churches and you pick either side, you would be excommunicated from the church. The idea being we are nonviolent. We're not here to fight wars, for kingdoms. So you stay out of this. Then one pastor went even further than that. James Miles, who's a pastor in North Carolina, I believe. He said, so the, the colonial army was going out seeking recruits. Right. 
and they would go to churches because that's where you would find people and they'd gather. Common meeting place. Yeah, so they would go to Baptist churches. So this pastor says, when these uh, these parcel of raccoon dogs, <laughs> he said, they're blowed up as big as a blather. He goes, for he, this pastor, got his commands from the king, God. And the field officers, the colonials, got their commands from hell or the devil. So that was his view of the patriots who were trying to recruit. He said, they're not working for God. They're working for the devil. So this is pretty common spread across the colonies. The Baptists are not supporting the war. So Ezra Stiles, who was one of the patriots' founding fathers, he senses this. And so he says of the Baptist, Though some few Baptists and Quakers are hardly with us, yet too many are so much otherwise that if all America was of their temper or coolness in the cause, the Parliament would easily carry their points and triumph over American liberty. He said James Manning, the leader of the New England Baptists, was against his country at heart, a loyalist who was merely affecting neutrality. So he said a few Baptists are supporting us, but if everyone believed like the Baptists did, the Parliament, the King, would win, and the revolution would be over. It also sounds like he, the support that they are getting sounds tepid. Yeah, so it was sort of a, a neutrality, like we're not for you or against you. Yeah. The Philadelphia Association of Baptists, which is one of the largest associations, when the war started, they came out with this statement. They said, we worried over the awful and pending calamities of war and recommending that congregations hold days of fasting to pray for God's help and forgiveness for America's sins. So not exactly jumping on board with things. So the Baptists were... Ambivalent is the best way. Cool. Because they didn't feel like they were going to get much difference. And there was a lot of religious concern about why they were there. So Baptists have, and this is important, the Baptists had been oppressed since they started. So we talked about in episode 1611. They were in Holland because they were run out of England. They were constantly oppressed from, from that time until this time. Marginalized, whipped, beaten, exiled. Rhode Island was created as a haven. Uh, they were constantly mistreated, exiled. So obviously they have a distrust of government. And one of them said that the colonials only wished to be freed from oppression so that they could oppress. And also I'm sure uh, with a history of oppression, taxation doesn't really rank very high. Right. So they're thinking religious freedom, liberty of conscience. And they don't trust this new government to give that to them. And so they're, they're outsiders, and that's the big thing. They're, they're outsiders. But things changed, and I believe it's a huge shift in Baptist history is the Revolutionary War in America. So by the time the war begins and, and picks up speed, the majority of Baptists support it. So what changed? And in fact, George Washington has a statement where he praises the Baptist support of the war as chaplains, things like that. So a change happens. Well, what was it? Well, they basically bet on the colonial government for liberty. They said, okay, something's going to happen. Who's more likely to give us liberty? The king had protected them, but it was it was arbitrary. It was sort of could be taken away really easily. Colonials were saying a lot about liberty. So they said, this is probably going to have more liberty with the colonials. So they began to adopt colonial ideas of liberty uh, in a similar way that, that slaves did. So African Americans fought for the, the, about 5,000... African-Americans fought for the colonialists who were slaveholders because they said 
this will change things. They're fighting for liberty, you know, declaration of independence. All men are created equal. Well, we let's fight for it. So the Baptists did the same thing. Worked out better for the Baptists. Right. So they bet on the colonial government that it would give them more freedom than Britain. So they started supporting the calls. Uh, which it, it worked out, and it's true, and it happened. Though in Massachusetts, it wasn't until 1833 that they actually got religious freedom. So it wasn't exactly like it came around really quickly. And then, more n- negatively, is that a word? Yeah. Well, when did the change happen? Is, is it Was it a gradual change? It happened within months. Okay. So you can think of the temperament at this time. It, blood's running hot. Uh, it happened within about a year. Yeah, and it, as the so a lot of the original quotes are before the Declaration of Independence. Yes. So yes, there is armed conflict, but even up even members of the founding fathers still harbored the hope right. for reconciliation. Reconciliation. Yeah. So maybe the deck, maybe yeah, the ob- obvious. So neutrality is no longer an option, really. That's true. Once the Declaration, it's one government versus another government, right. and so Bab decided with the government that they knew near them. Yeah. So so that did so once you had to pick sides, Baptist chose the Patriot side. But they did it on a gamble, in a sense. And they began to develop it. But one thing they began to do was they stopped being outsiders. So, operating as outsiders, they were skeptical. But now that they can join a new cause, everyone who joins a new cause is now an insider, right? Because it's there's no old people, there's no inner circle, because everyone's part of the inner circle. So, they become insiders. And they adopt a form of Christian nationalism. Uh that God has chosen this moment in time to bring liberty. And as Baptists, as Bible-believing Baptists, they said, we want to be on part of this. So it reminds me a lot of the first time that outsiders became insiders, which was Constantine, AD 325. Christians are persecuted. Then Constantine gives them religious freedom. Constantine gives the Edict of Milan, AD 313, and now Christians are part of the, uh, a protected class of people. The emperor is now a Christian. Christians are welcome. No more persecution. But I think you can also trace the decline in the church as it goes into what will become the Catholic Church to that moment when they became welcome as opposed to being outsiders. And I think that's what happened here. Baptists were outsiders. They were not welcomed by anybody. Uh, Samuel Adams said that they kind of deserved what they were getting because they they were acting out. But now by joining the Patriot Calls, now they're supporters of the government, so now they're insiders. And the course of Baptist history changes at this point. So they were outsiders fighting for their own liberty. And a perfect example of an intersection of history is with black Baptist Christians like we talked about last week. So before this time, many Baptist churches, or the Baptist church was the most welcoming of African-Americans. To the point of making them preachers, deacons, and even elders. So this is in the 1700s, 1750s, 60s. They were making sort of what America viewed as a slave class. They're, they're elevating them in the church. Which makes sense. As outsiders, you are drawn to other outsiders. Mm-hmm. And you welcome outsiders. So Baptists are persecuted. African Americans are persecuted. So they, they were welcome to, to, to lead. But now as Baptists become insiders, African Americans do not become insiders. And so the first... Black Church, 1773. The first continuing Black Church, 1778. 
now you see the beginning of a separate black church for Baptists. At the same time that the white Baptists are becoming welcomed into the government system, becoming chaplains, becoming part of this new America, black Baptist churches were even critiquing slavery up until the Revolutionary War in the South. And then they start not critiquing slavery. Often defending slavery. <laughs> Often defending it. Yeah, so they're so they force out black people out of their churches and to start their own. At the same time, they're becoming insiders. And I think these are tied directly to each other. Sometimes people say, you find what you're looking for. If you're always looking for it, you always find it. So that may be true, but it also could be that people don't know what they're talking about and they don't know history. So this racial issue, the same things are happening in the same time for the same reasons. Insiders are becoming outsiders, and so they don't welcome outsiders anymore. Or vice versa. Outsiders are coming insiders, and so they push out people who are not like them. And so black churches are forced to start their own churches because they're not welcome. And the Baptists who had a chance to become well, who were welcoming, now split. And so the best example is a guy named Richard Furman, who was a young Baptist preacher during the Revolutionary War, anti-slavery, was against it because he was a Baptist. Then the Revolutionary War starts, and he wholeheartedly supports the Revolutionary War. 1822, he writes a book called An Exposition of the Views of the Baptists Relative to the Colored Population of the U.S. And in that, he gives one of the most popular and influential defenses of, of slavery, which was used by all people at that time to defend from the Bible slavery. So Richard Furman is a perfect example. He was anti-slavery, joins the Revolutionary War, becomes pro-slavery. And the transition is that he was an outsider who was persecuted, Virginia. He becomes an insider through the war process, and then he persecutes others. And what's interesting is John Wesley actually critiqued America on these points. So John Wesley was a great Christian, was very critical of America during the Revolutionary War. So Wesley says that the colonists enjoyed their liberty in as full a manner as I do, or any reasonable man can desire. And then he ticked off a litany of colonial sins. They refused to pay their taxes. They destroyed property, shiploads of tea. And most importantly, they held African slaves, even as they cried out for their own freedom from English tyranny. For Wesley, the cry of no taxation without representation was absurd. He said, I reply, they are now taxed by themselves, in the very same sense that nine-tenths of us are. We have not only no vote in Parliament, but none in electing the members. So Wesley said, you're just like every other English citizen, and you own slaves, so your moral argument is shot. You're also violating Scripture. The Bible says you obey, then have the rule over you, to obey the government that God has ordained, which means you don't burn their ships, destroy their property, kill soldiers, in fact, what do you call politically motivated violence by non-governmental entities? The modern day uh, word for that is terrorism. So I'm not going to call the Patriots terrorists. I'm just going to say that they were rogue agents and engaging in acts of violence to get the government to change their policies or presence. Uh, and it worked. So the Stamp Act was repealed, Townsend Act was repealed because of the violence enacted by, not the government, that didn't come until 1776, but by rogue agents who became patriots and became. So that's problematic. And so John Wesley, as a Christian, says, Romans 13 is very clear. You're supposed to obey the government. 
uh, and paying your taxes is not a reason to destroy things. Yeah. Um, Jesus said, render unto Caesar. He's Jesus paid taxes. Jesus paid taxes. And Caesar wasn't exactly a benevolent dictator. So it's problematic. And Wesley saw that and he criticized America for it, which I'm not going to make a pronouncement on whether the Revolutionary War was a good war or not, but it's problematic. It's complicated. And the Baptist involvement changed their status in America. They became popular. They grew. They became part of government, became chaplains. And they became a major force in promoting and protecting slavery. Uh, Baptist pastors and leaders in the South especially were vital in protecting the institution of slavery. Vocal government officials, pastors, writing books. Uh, The Southern Baptist Convention was created to protect slave-owning missionaries. So, And then they, they explicitly conflated America with God's kingdom. So here's what James Manning and Isaac Backus, who had been against the war, by the time the war is on its way and they won, they say this, The American Revolution, which has been accomplished by many astonishing interpositions of providence, in other words, God has helped us win, God's on our side, stands closely connected with many others, which will take place in their order, and unite in one glorious end, even the advancement and completion of the Redeemer's kingdom. Nor is it at all improbable that America is reserved in the mind of Jehovah to be the grand theater on which the divine Redeemer will accomplish glorious things. So let me read that again. The Revolutionary War, American Revolution, will unite in one glorious end even the advancement and completion of the Redeemer's kingdom. That's Christian nationalism. That is God using God's plan of salvation, which was through Christ and the church, has now become America's mission and that god is now going to use america to save the world and that's what he says the redeemer's kingdom so now america is part of god's kingdom which is explicitly denied in scripture as he is the king of kings and that he there's no indication in scripture that he's going to use a nation for the church to grow that was the old way of doing things with the kingdom of israel there's also no indication that even if so if you do look at, America, at the Revolutionary War, there are many events that are hard to not see how much, you know, if you're a Christian, you'd say providence. If you're right. not a Christian, you'd say luck yeah. is involved. You know, Washington's retreat was covered by fog. Right. Um, crossing the Delaware is a terrible plan and it worked. It worked. <laughs> um, but Nineveh was successful. Right. Babylon was successful. Right. <laughs> so did God, does God help governments or armies win? The Bible says he does. Yeah. That's not the same thing as saying that the Revolutionary War is the advancement and completion of the Redeemer's kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were not part of God's kingdom. He just used them. So it wasn't that they say God helped America win. It's that America, the government and the war of America, is part of God's kingdom. And that's Christian nationalism. And we are supposed to be, what, sojourners and strangers in this world. And Baptists, white Baptists, Unfortunately, through the Revolutionary War process, became Americans first. And they did that by conflating and tying America and Christianity together so they couldn't be separated. And they became, America becomes the new Israel, which had already been trumpeted by other Protestants, uh, Presbyterians. The city set upon a hill. Mm-hmm. 
America was now the new Israel. But the church is, where's the church's place? So what Baptists is, where they say, well, it's both. It's the new Israel. It's a Christian nation where God is bringing about his kingdom. So if America falls, God's kingdom falls. And you can see the repercussions of that Baptist tradition to this very day. We'll leave that to the, let, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. But a big question to close with is, was the Revolutionary War a just war? So are we Christians first, or are we Baptists first, or are we Americans first? So we are explicitly Christians first. So what's the Christian tradition say about war? It doesn't start in 1776. So the tradition of war that Christians have developed over two almost 2,000 years is that there has to be conditions met before you go to war. And the idea of being war is terrible. And if you've never been a part of war, you don't realize how terrible it is. So let's prevent it as much as possible. Okay, so just war is a theory that's been developed over 1,500 years by Christians to say this is when it's okay to go to war. And so one guy summarizes it. Uh, a just, the just war tradition affirms that the government, that government is ordained of God to preserve peace and to maintain justice. War is to be avoided whenever possible, but at times the desire for peace, so there's the first condition, desire for peace, makes war necessary. War is thus justified only as a last resort. That's condition two. It must be declared by legitimate government, condition three, and have an attainable goal, namely the restoration of peace, condition four. And then lastly, it must protect the lives of non-combatants. So it's five conditions. You can't just kill everybody. So the idea being, you only go to war to bring peace. You only go to war as a last result. Nothing else will bring peace. And you go to war with with an attainable end, a proportional end. You don't just burn everything to the ground. And Aquinas even says that war, you only go to war if it's best for all parties involved, including the enemy. So when you win the war, it's got to be better for everybody than if you didn't go to war. And then finally, you don't kill everybody. You, you discern between who's a combatant and who's a non-combatant. Did America meet those qualifications? So you can deny the just war theory and reject 1,500 years of, of Christian thinking on this subject from the Bible. Or we could say that maybe, perhaps, America made a mistake. So I don't know the answer. That's that's a deeper question. So one person asked uh, John Fia, do high taxes justify a military rebellion against the government? Even if such a rebellion is conducted in direct violation of passages such as Romans 13 that command Christians to pay their taxes. Was the English government as tyrannical as the colonists claimed? Did the revolutionaries have a moral case to make for their own freedom when many had denied freedom to the slaves in their midst? So, I think we have to be okay with saying that there was a mistake made. Maybe there wasn't, because I've heard arguments that it was a just war, that the escalation of hostilities by England would have continued until it was actual violent oppression and that it, it was a it was to preserve peace. Okay, maybe. But let's see the evidence. What everyone's starting from is the assumption that it was a glorious revolution in the face of evil tyranny and it produced liberty like that was obviously a good thing. But that's an assumption. You have to you have to show the evidence. Look at England now. Is it that bad? Also look at other former colonies of England, which is a sordid history. So some colonies sure, yeah. made out better than others. Um, um, but yeah, so if you look at some of the colonies of England, they gained a measure or complete freedom from England without, without war. Without war. Without, I think the Revolutionary War has one of the highest kill 
percentages of any war. I have to double check that. I think it's one of obviously the most people weren't killed, but I think highest percentage per capita or something like that. So it was a very brutal war. It was at home too. Was it a last resort? Was there no other way to get what they wanted than killing people? Uh, maybe there wasn't. They did say it's been a, a long amount of time speaking with the crown. Right. Negotiating. So maybe maybe it was. It was a last resort for their goals, but then the right. question is, that were their goals? So one of the conditions for a just war is that you have a moral end and that the moral end is peace. Our high taxes or oppressive taxes and trade disruptions worth killing over. Would you, I mean, correct me, I'm not an expert in the Revolutionary War. Isn't that what it was basically fought over? The increasing pressure economically to the point of violence? I am also not an expert in the Revolutionary okay. War. <laughs> Neither of us are experts, so but do your own research. I think you'd be hard-pressed to make an argument that wasn't the genesis. Obviously, with anything as monumental as the Revolutionary War, boiling it down to a individual right. driver is going to be difficult. Um, so it also it also morphed, right? Um, so it depends on who you're talking about. But the idea that oppressive economic policies, even if they don't directly affect you, are worth fighting over. I, that's a tough sell. And violence wasn't started by the by the crown. The violence was initiated by the colonists, with Boston Tea Party, the burning of the Gatsby. The burning of a ship in Annapolis, uh, the riots in Boston. They were physically removing people and beating them. Yeah, it's tough to tell because there were a lot of, um, like even leading up to the Boston Massacre, there were a lot of run-ins with right. that local group and right. other people. Um, so it's difficult to... It is, right. But but the Bible clearly teaches that the government has power, power of the sword, and that citizens do not have that same power. Mm -hmm. And the power specifically for peace. Right. So would there have been peace if the colonists had not created violence? And so was it just to go to war when there could have been peace without it? So, you know, revisionist history is tough. But as a Baptist at that time, they were ambivalent at the beginning and because they were asking these questions. And then my theory is there was some compromise with the government. And the results afterward, the trajectory of Baptist history splits between black and white, and that's totally separate trajectories. And it splits at the Revolutionary War. And then you see Baptist churches becoming oppressive. So this idea of Baptist love liberty did not continue after the Revolutionary War. They didn't love liberty. They, they worked to oppress people. So I think it just means we have to be very careful as Baptists to put spiritual things first and not fall into the trap that so many billions of people have fallen to of power and think that the government is going to make the church better by its support. Didn't happen with Constantine. It, I don't think it happened with Baptists in America. It's certainly not going to happen now. Uh, God does not depend on government help for the church to grow. And I think we've com we, we can compromise ourselves by being Americans first. There's nothing wrong with being American. There's nothing wrong with being a patriotic American. There's nothing even wrong with maybe supporting the Revolutionary War, as long as you're willing to give up on the Revolutionary War when it conflicts with scriptural principles. So that's the challenge, is in our current political climate, to make sure that we're not defending political, economic, 
policy issues at the expense of Christian principles. Love, unity, sound doctrine, peace, not capitalism, socialism, free markets, democracy, so on and so forth. Or when those, even when those things are good, relying on them right. to maintain the success of Christianity. Is religious liberty good? Yes. Does the church need religious liberty to grow? No. So the main thing for the church to focus on is not religious liberty. And Baptists have a long tradition of supporting religious liberty, and we should. But we've gotten to the point, I feel like we're depending on that must... Religious liberty must exist for the church to grow. And I think that's a development out of the Revolutionary War for Baptists, because it's certainly not in the Bible. The church grew most when it didn't have religious liberty. It's a tough subject, and it hits a lot of tough buttons for people, and I think we just have to take a step back and evaluate things objectively, as, as objectively as we can. And where we can't be objective, we look to someone who is objective, which is the scriptures and God's word there, and be willing to give up on some long-held principles of nationalism and listen to some other people in history. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com or message us on Twitter at History and Hope. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app of your choice.